Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be covering verses uh, 10 through 13 this morning, 10 through 13, and uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are ever so grateful that we can open up your word, and uh, grateful, dear Jesus, that we can be here right now in this moment to learn and to grow, to hear from you. So we ask and pray, dear God, that you would soften our hearts that you would help us to get rid of maybe the things that we brought into this room. May we focus on you, and may we focus on what it is you want to say to us. And so we love you, Lord. We give you this time. We honor you in it. In Jesus' name, and all God's people would say, amen. 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 Well, listen, I heard of a story of a little kid by the name of uh, Johnny. And uh, Johnny was what I would call a naughty little boy. Um, he was a bad little kid. You know, he would always pull his sister's hair, and he was just—he was just a bad kid all around. But um, his birthday was coming up, and and he was thinking, you know, man, he could really use a bicycle. And um, and so he went to his parents and he asked them, you know, mom, dad, can I get a bicycle for my birthday? And uh, his parents, knowing that he had been really naughty this last year, thought, you know what, why don't you go to Jesus and ask Jesus for a bicycle? And so he thought, okay, that's a good idea. So he went upstairs to his room and he pulled out his fat Crayolas and, and he began to um, write a letter to Jesus. And, and his first letter, it, it started by saying, dear Jesus, you know, I've been a good boy this year. Um, I would really like a bicycle for my birthday. Knowing that was a lie, and you can't really lie to Jesus, uh, he crumbled up the paper and he threw it away, and he began to write his second letter, and, and he said, Dear Jesus, you know, I've thought about being a good boy this year. Um, I would really like a bicycle. Love, Johnny. And just getting frustrated with that, knowing that you know, he'd been bad and naughty, um, crumbled it up, threw it away, and then he heard some church bells ringing in the background. And remember that there's a big church across the street, and so he walked out of his bedroom and down the stairs and out the front door and across the street and, and to the big church and up the big stairs and opened up the big doors and, and walked his way all the way to the front. And then he grabbed one of the statues in the front of that church, and he ran out of that church and down the stairs, across the street, into his house, up the stairs, into his bedroom, and put the statue under his bed, and he began to write his third letter. And it said, Dear Jesus... If you ever want to see your mom again, you better give me a bike. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes, unfortunately, Christians have a tendency to live their lives like Johnny. You know, we, we know that maybe we're not living up to the expectation that we should or living the way that we should. And, and we then think, oh, well, the Lord might be mad at us. The Lord might not care about us. The Lord might not um, want us. And rather than going to God in moments of need, we're, we're in essence held hostage by our failures and our mess-ups and thinking that, that God is mad at us. Rather than going to the Lord and going to His throne of grace, we hide ourselves in, in rooms of isolation and shame and fear and regret, and we allow this shame and fear and regret to um, overcome us. And listen, those thought lines of fear and shame and regret and isolation don't come from Jesus who wants to bestow his grace and mercy on us on a daily basis. No, 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 no. Those things come from another source, another realm, another person, 
Those things come from an enemy whose desire is to destroy you, whose desire is to isolate you, an enemy that wants you to doubt the goodness of God. And the reality is, is whether we like it or not, each and every single one of us is in a battle. And, and, and so whether we like it or not, there's a battle being waged around us in the spiritual realm. And unfortunately, many believers are not prepared to fight that battle. Maybe even some pastors and leaders are not prepared to fight that battle. And most often, we don't know who the enemy is. We don't know where the attacks are coming from. We don't know um, a plan or have a plan for victory to overcome sin and temptation and trials and tribulations. And this morning, Paul the Apostle is going to instruct us in what I would call the the fine art of spiritual warfare. And he's going to remind us that there's a real battle that takes place and there is a real enemy that is there, but that every Christian can stand because of what Jesus has already done for us. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I've titled this morning's message, The Devil Wears Prada. The Devil Wears Prada. And we're going to be looking at three points. We're going to look at verse 10 through 11 to know your enemy, verse 12 to know your battle, and then verse 13 to know your victory, to know your enemy, to know your battle, and to um, know your victory. But let me just kind of set the scene so we're all on the same page and moving in the right direction as Paul the Apostle is writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to this church in what we know of today as the modern-day country of Turkey. But back then, it was this region called Asia Minor. It was a a state province of the Roman Empire. And uh, the capital city was Ephesus. It was a massive city. Um, They had a coliseum that seats around 25,000 people. It's a bunch of ruins today. You can visit it today. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to see. But when Paul was writing to this church, this city was really encased in this this idea of like spiritual oppression. Um, They were really into the occult. And so Paul is writing to this church, this church that he loves dearly. He spent the majority of his ministry in this city, um, planting this church and baptizing the people and doing baby dedications, all while he taught at the school of Tyrannus, according to the book of Acts making tents. And uh, when Paul is writing to this church, he is currently in Rome, in prison on death row. For all intents and purposes, he believes he is going to die. And so he writes a series of what we call prison epistles, Ephesians, um, Philippians, Colossians, and then he writes to a good buddy of his by the name of Philemon. And in this, he's writing to this church, wanting to really remind them of who they are in Christ. And he starts off this book really just grandiose. He, he reminds them that they're saints in Jesus. And uh, I know many of us might not think that we're saints, but if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint. And, and the idea is, is that you are either a saint or you ain't, okay? It's not good grammar, but it's good theology. And, and so you, you are a saint in Christ. And I know some of us don't feel like saints. So maybe if we say it in Spanish, like Santo Fernando, right? That sounds a little bit more legit. Um, you know, we think like, man, I've never performed a miracle. The closest to a miracle I've ever gotten is miracle whip. Um, and so listen, you're a saint in Jesus. And then he says that you've been brought near because of the blood of Jesus. And so I think about this in terms of like anybody watch Sesame Street growing up? And there was this guy named Grover, 
and he would run from the back of the stage and he would, he would go far, near, and he would run up and flap his arms. That's the idea here. This is, this is Paul's impression of Grover that you have now been brought near to the blood of Jesus. He, he says then that you um, have gone from death to life, that you've been adopted in as heirs. And then he transitions from that to chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Ephesians to really talk about how do you live out your identity in Christ. Now that you've been brought near, now that you're adopted, now that you've gone to life, now that you're a saint, how do you live it out? And then he closes the whole book out here in chapter 6, verse 10. In this really weird and bizarre, what I would call um, really weird and bizarre idea of, of talking about this guy who actually hates you. He, he talks about the, in his final remarks that we have a very real and present enemy that doesn't want you to live for Jesus. He doesn't want you to be brought near. He doesn't want you to live as a saint. He doesn't want you to be adopted in or go from death to life. And that this enemy that hates God also hates you. And that he has set up an army against you. And while God has great plans for you, yes, the devil also has plans for you as well. And sometimes those plans look good because the Bible tells us that sin is pleasing for a season, that, that the devil is cunning, he is slick, and that's why he wears Prada. And so if you're with me on this, let's hop in. I'll read all of what we're going to cover and then we'll break it down. Notice chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand." Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Something that we need to remember is that this life is not a playground, but rather it is a battleground. And that there's an enemy that is strong. And yet we're called to be strong in the Lord. When the Bible talks about the devil, it talks about the devil in terms of really an apex predator. Right? So when the Bible talks about the devil, Peter says that he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Right? The lion is really the apex predator of the Sahara, isn't it? Um, when it talks about the devil, it talks about him being a dragon. And if we think about that, the, the Komodo dragon, for example, is the apex predator on the Galapagos Islands. And so when it talks about the devil, the Bible, it talks about the devil in terms of being an apex predator, this predator that is roaming, this predator that is top of the food chain, this predator that wants to go after Christians. And so when it talks about Christians in the Bible, what, is, what does the Bible refer to Christians as when it comes to an animal? Sheep. Sheep. So how does a sheep go a few rounds in the octagon with a lion. Have you ever seen that? Or a Komodo dragon? How does a sheep survive against an apex predator? The idea is, is that we must be strong in the Lord. Why? Because sheep will never last against an apex predator. Sheep, if you think about it, are absolutely dumb, aren't they? 
If you want to disprove the theory of evolution, you sheep. Because in survival of the fittest, sheep should not have survived. They have no fangs. They have no quills. Um, they have no skunk-like odor. Um, I mean, sheep, they're, they're just really sweaters with hooves, right? And, and so this idea of a sheep surviving against an apex predator, um, listen, sheep wander off, sheep get lost, sheep, um, they, they follow one another off of, off of cliffs. I mean, sheep, uh, they just, against a lion or a dragon or a wolf, they'll be led to the slaughter. So how do we as Christians, we cannot defend ourselves in our own strength, but this is the reason why God has given us a shepherd, a shepherd to protect the sheep, a shepherd to make sure that we are protected against the, the things of the devil. And so he doesn't leave us helpless. He gives us a shepherd. This is why we're called to be to stand strong in the Lord, not in your abilities, not in your own way of doing things, not in your own coolness. No, in the Lord. His goal is to make us like like Rambo sheep or or should I say Rambo sheep? Oh, that's come on. That's a good one. Like that's his goal. And, and so as Christians, we should never rely on our own strength. No, we must tap into the mighty power of the Lord. And with the Lord as our power source, we can claim victory. You see, it's only through the strength of Jesus that we can stand in this ongoing spiritual battle. And no matter how much we know about the way that God wants us to live or how much we want to please him, there are going to be times when we fall flat on our face and Satan is waiting at every moment to bring us down. But we have a hope. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's available to us to be strong in the Lord. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death if by any means I might obtain the resurrection of the dead. The idea of what he's talking about is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives within you and I. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? And so while victory is certain, listen, we win in the end. Little spoiler alert, read the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. There's still a battle that needs to be waged here on this earth. And so to make sure that we don't end up as carnage on the battlefield or, or raise the white flag of surrender in the end, we have to know our enemy. In a recent poll conducted by Gallup on the state of religion in America, it stated that 86% of Americans have a belief in God, while only 63% of Americans believe that the devil is actually real. In the movie, The Usual Suspects, one of the characters says that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And I would say that is pretty true. One of the reasons why um, we look at the world today is, is looking in the world and, and thinking of the idea of the devil. People have this really kind of silly concept in view that the devil is just kind of like the yin to the yang of, of God. That somehow that God and the devil are the same and they've been duking it out in this epic battle for life. 
You know, we have these funny images of the devil. Me growing up watching kind of Saturday morning cartoons in the 80s. Um, Anybody watch Saturday morning cartoons in the 80s? Growing up doing that, for me, the devil was always like this weird looking guy who liked to wear red spandex and um, had a hipster mustache and he had a pitchfork and then he controlled the thermostat in hell, right? That was the image I had of him. And, and we have this view that, that he's just kind of like this, this thing that, you know, we, we either pay too much attention to or we pay no attention to. And I think sometimes Christians do that, right? We, many of us know the Christians that blame everything on the devil, right? That, that everything is the devil's fault. I got a flat tire on my way to church. The devil doesn't want me going to church today. Or you just ran over a nail. I'm just saying... Or sometimes we, we pay no attention that he's not even there, he's not real. But the reality is, is that as believers, we should focus not on the devil, but rather Jesus and the power over the enemy to be able to stand in the Lord. But the Bible does say that the devil is very powerful. He's been given many names in the Bible. Um, One is devil, which means accuser. Satan, which means adversary. The Bible calls him a tempter, a murderer, a liar. He's called a lion, a serpent, as well as the God of this age. And while he is very real, we must remember that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But we know the story of the devil, that he uh, was a created being. Isaiah chapter 14 describes him as Lucifer and that he was the worship leader in heaven and pride began to fill his heart and he proclaims himself that I will be like the most high, I will attain the throne. And so he gets kicked out of heaven because of the pride filled in his heart. And one of the things that we must remember is that God cast him out of heaven. A third of the angels joined him in this rebellion. Uh, They're now known as demons. And he is the epitome of darkness, hatred, vile, wickedness, murder, and the father of all lies. But the key to remember is that the devil is not equal with God. He is a created being like you and I. And there's this idea that somehow he's, you know, like I said, this yin and yang, that they battle it out, that sometimes God actually feels the punches from the devil in this battle. No, 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 no. God is up here as creator of all things and king of kings, and the devil is down here with you and I as a created being. And the Lord sits on the throne and the devil does not. And and so he is not all-knowing, he is not omnipresent, he is not omnipotent, he is limited in his knowledge and his activity. God is up here and the devil is down here. But because the devil is so filled with pride and he knows his fate, he hates God. And listen, anything that God loves, he is going to hate. And God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you. And so you can be certain that anything that God loves, the devil hates. And since God loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, for you, he's going to hate you. And he's going to go after you. And he's going to try to destroy you. He will always attack the people that that God loves. His favorite beverage is haterade because he's a hater from the beginning. But one thing is certain, he is crafty. Notice 
Paul tells us that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That, that word wiles is the, the word craftiness. And not like he likes to go down to Joanne Fabric and buy a bunch of scrapbooking material and, and be all crafty that way. No, he, he's rather, he, he likes to use manipulations and tactics and methods to keep you from the great things that God wants in your life. You could say that the devil has a master's degree in trigonometry. And his whole goal is to bring you down. And he knows that he can't keep you from heaven. And so he will do everything he can to keep you from taking anyone else to heaven with you. And so he's crafty. Instead of showing us how he wants to ruin our lives, he'll ask questions. And this is one of the ways that the devil works. So you have to know your enemy. He doesn't come right out and say, Fernando, listen, I want to destroy your life. Do this. No, no, no. He'll get you to ask questions. And that's what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He didn't come up to Adam and Eve and say, Adam and Eve, you know, you guys should murder. No, he, he asked them, so did God really say you can't eat from that tree? He asks questions. Or remember, because he came like a slithering serpent, it's more like, so, did God really say? Because he knows that if, if he can get you to question God, then he can get you to doubt God. And if he can get you to doubt God, then he can have his way in your life, which is to lie, kill, steal, and destroy everything that God has for you. And, and so what we see here is we have to know your enemy. You have to know uh, what he wants. We can't be ignorant of what he wants to do. He will try to get us to question God's love, to question God's power, to question God's mercy, to question God's grace in our lives. And so we have to look and know our enemy because he is crafty. But notice he is also organized. And so you have to know your battle. Notice our second point. He, he says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. While we can't see the devil or feel the devil, he will fight against us in ways that are hard to detect. He's going to use guerrilla warfare and, and whatever he can. And he's got privates and corporals and sergeants and generals to get that job done. But one of the things that we need to remember is while we know our enemy, okay, he's crafty, he's manipulating, he hates God, which means he hates me. So we know our enemy. We also have to know our battle. And what does Paul the apostle tell us? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is not with our husband. Our battle is not with our wife. Our battle is not with our boss. Our battle is not with our neighbor. Our battle is not with other drivers on the road. Well, maybe sometimes it is. Um, no, our battle is not against those things. But notice what he says. It's against principalities and, and powers and rulers of darkness of spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What we must understand is that our battle isn't with people. No, 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 no. It's with these spiritual beings. Now, people might be used by these spiritual things. People um, might be used by them, but what we must remember is that people are not the enemy. Maybe people are being held captive by the enemy, but they are not the enemy. 
And while we don't hear bombs dropping or bullets zinging by our heads, we need to remember that this life that we live is a real battlefield. And that Satan has us in the crosshairs of his scope. And his goal is to take us out. And he will use vulnerabilities, he will use weaknesses and, and, and different things to bring us down. And there are two specific battles that take place in the believer's life. Number one, sins and temptations. And number two, trials and tribulations. Number one, the, the first battle, these sins and temptations are things that the devil will throw our way to bring us down. He will use his powers to take advantage and, and stalk us at every step and lay landmines in our path to bring us down. And he'll use sexual sin, foolishness, drunkenness, a gossiping, lying, busybodies, false religion, bitterness, condemning thoughts to bring us down. And so whether you're young or old, athletic or academic, whether you're a new believer or a seasoned one, the devil has plans. And this is a battle of things that are unseen. And, and he'll use these things to, to bring us down these sins and temptations. And one of the best examples I can think of that is in the story of Joseph. If you guys remember the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 41, the Bible tells us that, that Joseph had these great dreams and plans that God had given him, that one day he would um, be in charge and that his, father's, that his father and his brothers would bow down before him. And, and uh, Jacob loved Joseph dearly. He gave him this bright, rainbow bright jacket, and uh, it was a tunic of many colors, and his brothers were jealous of his rainbow bright jacket. And so they decided to kill him. And then one brother got a little bit smart and was like, all right, let's not kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. And they saw these Midianite slave traders coming by and they sold him into slavery. Now, listen, some of us probably have brothers and maybe some of us have thought about getting rid of our brothers um, or selling them. Um, these brothers actually did it, which makes them the worst brothers in human history, right? And they, they sold him into slavery and they took his tunic and they dipped it in blood and they gave it to um, his father, Jacob. And they, they told his father, Jacob, that, that Joseph had been um, attacked by some a wild animal in Israel, that he had been killed by some wild animal in Israel. And, and so Joseph makes his way on over to Egypt. And Joseph, I mean, this was a guy that loved the Lord. He cared about the things of God. And it tells us that he then gets sold into slavery to a guy by the name of Potiphar. And the Bible tells us that Potiphar was the chief executioner of Egypt. What did he do for a living? He killed people. That's what he did. And, and it says that Joseph begins to rise up within the ranks of Potiphar's household, so much so that he lets Joseph handle every situation in his entire household to where um, Potiphar didn't even care about what took place in his house. But then it tells us that, that Potiphar's wife had eyes for young Joseph. And she comes to him, and I view her in my head for some reason as like Corella DeVille. Just this, this lady that comes to him and says, come lie with me. And, and he says, how can I do such an evil thing against my God? And so while Jacob thought Joseph had been attacked by some wild animal in Israel, the reality was, was he was being attacked by a cougar in Egypt. <laughs> and, and, and she makes this false accusation against him that, that he 
raped her. And so Joseph gets thrown in jail. Now, here's the thing. If you think Potiphar, if you think that your wife had been assaulted by this young man, what do you think he would have done? What did he do for a living? He killed people. So what do you think he should have done to Joseph if he would have believed his wife? Chief executioned him, right? But he doesn't. He gets thrown in the prison palace. And this whole time, Joseph is thinking, Lord, how can I do such an evil thing against my God? Lord, I'm following you. I'm honoring you. These sins and temptations came Joseph's way. But throughout his entire life, he stood up against them. He knew that there was something bigger in his life. He knew that there was a bigger calling in his life. Therefore, he refused to give in to these sins by lying with Potiphar's wife. He refused to give in to these temptations by doubting God's love and God's mercy and grace. And the result was that one day Pharaoh had some Chipotle and had some crazy dreams and asked Joseph to interpret those dreams. And the result was that Joseph now gets to be second in command of all of Egypt. He gets Pharaoh's signet ring. He gets to ride around in air chariot too. He, he gets to live his life um, protecting his family by storing up food for a famine. He refused to give in to the sins and tempt temptations. One of the ways that the devil will come after us is by throwing these sins and temptations into our life. And so you have to know your battle. What is your weakness? What are the things that bring you down? How do you avoid them? The second way that the devil likes to go after us is by trials and tribulations. We're told to count it all joy when we fall into trials and tribulations. And that seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Like a joyful tribulation. An oxymoron are two things that don't go together, right? Like, like jumbo shrimp. Like that doesn't make any sense. Or freshly frozen. Or Microsoft works. You know, like these are things that don't go together. But, but to, to count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations... And, and one of the examples I like to think about these trials and temptations has to do with like geology. You know, geology. Geology is really the, what they call the study of, of pressure and time. And so I think about it in terms of like this. For example, this right here is just a piece of coal. It's just a, a black piece of coal. And, and what happens when you apply pressure and time to this piece of coal that is made up of carbon, what you get over pressure and time is you ultimately get one of these, a diamond. And my wife let me borrow her engagement ring for this illustration. Um, but you get a diamond. A diamond is just carbon. What, what's the difference? Pressure and time. And, and so what happens when trials and tribulations come into our life? These trials and tribulations are, are these pressures that come. They take place in our life and, and we hate it. And we're like, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why is this battle taking place in my life? What is going on? And you know what happens when you take a piece of coal out of the ground before its appropriate time? It stays a piece of coal. It's just black and dark. You have to allow the pressure and the time to take place in your life so that ultimately God can do something beautiful and miraculous and sparkling and amazing in your life. Pressure and time are essential to the Christian walk. 
And this process of, of, of pressure and time reforms us and, and changes us. But you have to know your battle. Sometimes your battle is sin and temptation. Sometimes your battle is, is trials and tribulation. Whatever the case, in the midst of those, you be strong in the Lord. And sometimes we, we, we look at the trials and tribulations or the sins and temptations and we're, we're not prepared for them. And the enemy will come after us and he'll say things like, you're a loser. And he'll make you feel unworthy. And the reason why is because he's the accuser of the brethren, accusing us day and night before the throne. He always comes in that third person, you know, you, Fernando, you're a horrible person. And you begin to think, yeah, Fernando's a bad guy, man. Wow, what's wrong with, with him? And, 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 and what happens is, is these accusations come against us because he's in heaven accusing us before the throne. But each and every single time, Jesus says, no, 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 my blood has covered him. My blood has covered him. My blood has covered him. He'll come in and say things like, you can't trust God. You have to do things all by yourself like little Johnny did at the beginning. You got to take matters into your own hands. He'll say things like, you can be passive about sin. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. That sin, it's not that big of a deal. Listen, listen, it is a big deal. It's such a big deal that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for it. He'll say things like, change is too hard. You should just stay the same. Or, or he'll say things like, you have to earn God's grace. Or, or he'll, he'll say things like, your past actually does define you. Listen, we are not perfect people. We all fail. We all mess up. We all blow it. But we have to know our battles. We, we're we're going to mess up, yes. We're, we're going to maybe give in to sins and temptations. Yes, we're probably going to pull ourselves out of the trials and tribulations before it is time. And in this, we need to remember we are not perfect people and there's no such thing as a perfect person. Well, actually, I did hear a story once of a perfect guy and a perfect girl. They were the perfect um, couple. They met in the most perfect way. They had the most perfect dating arrangement. And then he decided to ask her to marry him. And, and he proposed in the most perfect way. And, and then they got married and it was perfect. And it was a perfect ceremony. And, and uh, the first few months of their marriage was just perfect. And then one day they were driving down the road and, and it was snowing out and, and they saw this big hairy monster on the side of the road and, and he was hitchhiking. This is a true story. And, and he was hitchhiking and they pulled over and they introduced themselves. Hi, we're the perfect couple. And, and this big hairy monster said, hi, I'm Bigfoot. And he was like, can you give me a ride? And they were like, yeah, being the perfect couple, they're going to let Bigfoot, Sasquatch, into their car. And, and they began to make their way down the road. And before long, because it was snowing, they, they skidded out and they got into a car accident and only one person survived. Who survived, you would ask? Well, we would all say the perfect woman because everyone knows that there's no such thing as Bigfoot and there's no such thing as the perfect man. But wait, 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 before you get going, 
there's no such thing as Bigfoot and there's no such thing as the perfect man, that means the perfect woman was driving the car, which explains the accident in the first place. And so, I'm kidding. That was a joke, okay? You can send your complaints to Pastor Cody at redemptioncalvary.com. Listen, there's no perfect people. Man, we all fail and we all blow it and we're all going to mess up. But God in his grace and in his mercy sent his one and only son Jesus to die on the cross for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, meaning this, that every single time we messed up and every single time we blew it and every single time we gave into sin and temptation and every single time we messed up in our trials and tribulations, these battles that we face, every single one of those things were nailed to Jesus on the cross so that every foolish offense and every failure and every foolish thought and every foolish action in my life was nailed to Jesus on the cross. And in that moment, as Jesus died on the cross, his righteousness is now imputed or given to me as a believer when I believe in him as my Lord and Savior. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. It's the greatest trade in human history that God would get my sin. Jesus would get my sin and I would get righteousness, that I would get forgiveness that I would be made whole in him, that it would be justified, that I would be justified or just as if I had never sinned in Jesus Christ. And so you have to know your enemy. You have to know your battle. The devil would love nothing more than to get us distracted. He would love nothing more to bring us down. And as the great theologian Tom Petty once said, no, I won't back down. I will stand my ground. Know your enemy, know your battle, and know your victory. Notice what he tells us in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We have already been given a great victory. We have been given a great victory in Jesus. You cannot win in your own strength, and that is why we have Jesus he has given us his armor. He has given us all that we need. And here's a guarantee for all Christians. It doesn't matter whether you're Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. There will be times in your life where you feel lost, where you'll get off track, where you'll drop your focus from God and you'll feel weak and vulnerable and tempted. And without missing a beat, the devil will come after you and he'll start lurking and he'll start whispering things in your ears and using skillful words to deceit bring deceit in your life. But Satan doesn't have the final word in your life. You have to know your victory. And how do you know your victory? By getting the word of God into your life. So that when the devil comes after you and says, you're such a sinner, you can say, no, 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 I am completely forgiven in Jesus Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the devil comes and says, no, you're in bondage, you can say, no, 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 no. Whom the son sets free is free indeed. I've been set free by Jesus. When the devil comes and says, your past defines you. Look at what you used to do and the way you used to live. You can say, no, 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 no. I am therefore a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and all things are now made new. In Christ we must remember the differences between conviction and condemnation. 
Because the devil wants to bring condemnation into our life. And I think about it in the life of Peter and Judas. Both guys betrayed Jesus, didn't they? Judas betrayed Jesus for silver. Peter betrayed Jesus by denying him three times. Both guys betrayed Jesus, but the difference was condemnation versus conviction. Condemnation led Judas to kill himself. Conviction led Peter back to the feet of Jesus on that beach when Jesus, remember, was making fish tacos and he was making these, he was frying up the fish. I, I think it was fish tacos, but he was frying up the fish and he said, Peter, do you love me? You, you know I love you, Lord. And that conviction led him to being restored on that beach. The devil wants to bring condemnation into your life to, to ruin your life. When we sin, when we mess up, because we're not perfect people, it must lead to conviction where we run to Jesus. The devil wants to keep on bringing up your past. Tell him to get thee behind me, Satan. He knows his future. Tell him, listen, listen, bro, don't, don't come near me. Six feet social distancing, all right? Don't, don't be around me because... Jesus has already given me eternal life. Listen, we face an army whose goal is to, to defeat us. But we have Jesus who wants to save us. And even though the enemy is slick and he is cunning and he wants to destroy you, he wears Prada, his goal, his intentions for evil, God can use for good. And God can turn those around. And even though we win in the end, we must, in this life, engage in the battle. And individual battles can be lost if we haven't done everything to stand. And, and it will be a struggle until Jesus returns. And so in the meantime, you must know your enemy, you must know your battle, and you must know your victory, that God has already given you the victory to stand because of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you this morning and this time and, and grateful for your love and your grace in our lives. And I know that for some of us this morning, we are in the midst of sins and temptations. For some of us, maybe we're in the midst of trials and tribulations. I pray, dear God, that in the midst of these things, we would do all that we can to stand like Joseph to, to run away and say, no, I will not give into this. Or to, to in the trials and tribulations, to stay in that mo moment and to allow you to work in the pressures in the time of our lives. Maybe for some of us here, dear God, we don't know you and we don't have a relationship with you. And so we don't have your protection. We don't have the ability to stand in you. I pray that today would be the day that we would come to the saving knowledge of you because of what you did for us on the cross. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never given your heart or your life to Jesus. Listen, we want today to be the day that God would do a new work in your heart and in your life and that he would bring you to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And so if you're in this room and that's you, God is speaking to you, would you have the boldness to raise your hand? Because I would love to pray for you and ask that God would do a new work in your heart and in your life. Or maybe you're watching online and that's you. Would you let us know at Redemption Calvary and wherever you're at, whether you're in this room or whether you're watching online, that you'd pray this prayer with me and say, Dear Jesus, today I admit that I am a sinner. 
and I have fallen short of your perfection. But I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sin and that three days later you rose from the grave conquering that sin and the devil so that I can have a relationship with you. So today I give you my heart and I give you my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.